Awatia Mita is our Nuku 54. She is a justice advocate speaking out for equitable outcomes in the criminal justice system. She is also a passionate advocate for Indigenous rights. Her current advocacy projects are around repealing the Bail Amendment Act 2013 and increasing the use of restorative practice alternatives to harm. Much of this drive came as a result of her own 22-month incarceration in 2015 and seeing firsthand the vulnerability and strength of our wahine Māori under punitive state control. She wants to help create a system that restores balance while keeping the mana and dignity of our whānau intact. In this episode, we talk about her childhood and the integral part her whānau played in sharing the stories of resistance in Aotearoa. We discuss her experience in the prison system and how the death of her son, while she was incarcerated, changed her forever. Awatia also shares her current journey and the possibility of one day lending her voice to represent our people in our highest office. Whakarongo mai. Kia ora, I'm Kiane. Nuku is a movement. We're empowering Indigenous wahine to be agents of change, cultivating opportunities to shape the world we want. Through this series, we're meeting 100 kick-ass Indigenous wahine doing things differently. They show us how the world can be shaped by our unique Indigenous voice. It's all about who we are and not who we've been told to be. Nuku, mahine, mohine, kiahine. Morina Awatia Mita, how are you? Uh, Atamari, I'm I'm good, thanks. I'm happy. Thank you so much for being part of the Nuku series um, and being one of our Nuku wahine down here in Puneke. It is really exciting to sit down and kōrero with you, um, me knowing a little bit about your journey and a little bit about your life, which some of us may have seen through a recent film that was made about your mum's life and so we got to learn a little bit about you and your whanau as well. Um, can you tell me who you are and where you're from? Sure, I mean to start with um, I was really humbled to be asked to be a part of Nuku Woman. I looked at the um, other women uh, who have already participated and um, I it was a huge honour to me to be alongside those women. Um, and, and some of those women uh, um, have, uh, some of those women um, shoulders um, I stand on in, in what I do. Um, so where I'm from, I mainly grew up between um, my parents, so my mum in Auckland and my dad in Ruatoria. And we didn't have much of um, contact with, um, I would say, like a traditional Māori upbringing. My mum was away from her family and the real exposure that I got to tell Māori and um, more traditional upbringing was when I would go back to Ruatoria and spend time with my father and um we were living on our ancestral land that's never left um, the hands of our people. It's, mm. it's always um, been with us since they arrived in the area. Um, so, um, and just going up to spending time on our marae and um, all of the activities that used to go on there. And back then, there were nearly daily activities. It was very much living and alive. And um, with kapahaka and um, yeah, different activities going on, and I always 
loved um, the like having that hustle and bustle of the of the marae and the fires going and the kota and yeah um, and just so many people the social the communal kind mm. of living um, that we had then that, um, and how the marae brought us would bring us all together and that was a really uh, you know steep contrast to being in the city and not um, being as connected with the community. And I would say back then, our main kind of community were um, other activists, uh, other people involved in similar work that my mum was doing. Your mum uh, was such a huge part of activism in Aotearoa uh, by creating and documenting activism through film. And you had mentioned to me a little earlier that one of the first sentences you learned to write as a child was give our land back. What was what was your everyday life in that space that that was one of the first ever sentences you wrote? Like that's a pretty powerful childhood. Yeah, um, we definitely, uh, my younger brother and I, um, being the youngest at that time, uh, went with our mother pretty much everywhere. Um, she, you know, had to go. Um, and I say had to go because sometimes, you know, we were hitchhiking with our mother to different hui around the country uh, back in those days. Um, at the time that I wrote Give Our Land Back, um, I was in primary school, um, Robert Muldoon was the Prime Minister of New Zealand and uh, I definitely saw him as an enemy to um, Māori rights, to uh, Tenoranga Tiratanga and our mana motuhake, so uh, an enemy to Māori self-determination and, and independence mm. you know, at that age and that was largely influenced through our time at uh, Bastion Point and also through um, my mother's involvement with Ngā Tamatoa. So that was, um, that was that was a kind of context of what was happening around us at the time. And so to me, I think in our household, it's perfectly natural that that would be <laughs> one of my first sentences. <laughs> I feel like that's going to be one of my daughter's first sentences too. <laughs> um, when, you know, we think about this, um, time in your life when you were around that age, did you have ambitions to, you know, be a certain thing that young, like in terms of a career pathway? Did you know what you wanted to do growing up from that young age by what you had seen around you? Um, <laughs> I think there was a large part of me was still very much a typical little girl in mm -hmm. terms of the things that I wanted to do. Um so I think the first thing I wanted to do actually was become a scientist. And I didn't know what that really meant, but uh, <laughs> it looked cool. You wore a lab coat and you um, worked like with chemistry. Since. Oh, your Bunsen burners and all <laughs> yeah. of those things, yeah. <laughs> and um, yeah, I, yeah, I liked um, at, that, <laughs> at that age, I had a love of trivia and um, it was just this idea that I could um, yeah, gather all kind of all kinds of knowledge and and kind of bring it together and and create things. Mm. So 
in a way, it was still like um, about being creative. But at that time, I thought like it was like a very important thing that you could do was to be a scientist. So I wanted to do something, you know, important like that. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Can you, um, you know, I just, I think about the influence of that period in your life and I think about the mahi that you're doing now and there's been a long journey of your life with varying things that have happened throughout your lifetime that have led you to where you are now and while we do honour your mum, Merata, we also actually really acknowledge you and the mahi that you have done on your own um, in the space that you're currently in. Can you share with us how you describe what it is you do right now? Yeah, I I um I call myself a, a justice advocate. Um mainly I'm focused on the condition of our wahine Māori uh, within the criminal justice system and having that experience myself I felt I had a responsibility to speak about the issues that affect uh, Māori women in this space because, you know, whether um, Indigenous women are a fast-growing number of women being incarcerated around the world. So it's not just um, particular to Aotearoa or to Australia or to Canada. Um, you know, we we have this shared experience of being Indigenous people and living under colonisation, and we've had the leadership of our people attacked um, through either their murder through different conflicts or through them um, being removed from their communities. Mm. And in much the same way, I see our women as being leaders in our communities and in their families of having to step into those roles um, and so many of our men are being incarcerated or are living under colonisation in so many ways that um, now I feel like this is another kind of um, reason or another way that uh, Māori leadership is being attacked when we um, start to remove so many Māori women out of our communities. Mm. Can you tell me a little bit about you, your experience being in prison? Because that was a huge driver to get you to where you are today, that experience of you being incarcerated. Um, can you tell me a bit about what led you there? What happened? And what was your experience like when you were in there? Yeah, I think I want to take a step back to um, after the after the documentary about our mum came out, um, so many of the other activists from that era didn't know that this had happened um, to our whanau and, and with our mum because they had all been in prison. They had all been um, in a position where they were having to worry about their partners and children on the outside. How were they going to get a, um, you know, an income now for their families? Like what was going to happen to their families on the inside? Um, sorry, what was going to happen to their families on the outside mm. while they were on the inside? And so the, the leadership of the activist movement was smashed and 
nobody really knew what was happening with everyone else because now they were forced to um, have to consider their own personal circumstances above everything else at that point. That's where they were pushed to, um, which was an effective strategy in terms of they didn't have the... Um, they. You know, they didn't have, I guess, like the space to put towards their activism because they were having to care about their own well-being and the well-being of their families. So um, my being in prison, afterwards I got a lot of support from that community um, because in a way they saw it as being as some as part of our experience of being Indigenous in Aotearoa. Mm. And it's hard to argue if when we look at the stats of how many of our people uh, are in that system. So I had what I thought was an idea of what it would be like in there. And, um, yeah, but when you when you walk through the gates and you see you're surrounded by two-thirds of the prison being of a Māori woman, it was a huge shock to me. Um, and then in trying to, um, when I had that, I guess when I had some time in there, to consider all of the unjust things that were going on in there, I was at least, you know, for me, I was fortunate enough to have an activist background to reconnect to, to look at these things in a different context. So to shift away from this context of, oh, Māori are just more criminal, that's why um, they're they're in prison. Um, that's why all these women in prison because oh they have anger issues. You know all, all of the racial tropes that we hear, mm. the stereotypes. The angry Maori woman. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and and the criminal Maori. So then um, this comes back, you know, right back to Darwin and this idea that all you know, and even within the the um, doctrine of discovery that Indigenous people. Um, should have their sovereignty removed, that Indigenous people are somehow genetically uh, inferior, you know, all these types of things, that we have a warrior gene, and that's why we're so violent. Mm. Um, and what I'm saying is, is that with having a, an activist background, um, I had a counter-narrative, which was that there was a system, actually the state had designed it to ensure that our people were being funneled into prisons, into poverty, um, removed from their lands um, and brought into urban spaces with the promise of jobs. And then when those jobs disappeared, they were put into the prison. Um, and so, yeah, and so that's when, when I put it together like that. So instead of blaming my people for being in this position, I could look at the structural and systemic um, design of, of how that had come about. And yeah, that's where I felt I had a responsibility to to speak out on the issues that were affecting um, so many of our women in there. And did that whakaaro, that knowledge, that, um, that oh, I guess, research that you were well aware of, did that help you on a day-to-day -day basis to deal with being in a prison? Because there's also your own, there's the bigger picture of you advocating for all of the wahine that are in there, but there's also a very personal survival, you know, mental health, emotional thing that you have to deal with yourself being in that space. What helped you personally to be able to survive that 22 months? I think a lot of women would say that how you 
make it through your lag is very dependent on developing your own self-reliance. Mm. So any ideas about um, that there's help to for the individual to get their lives on track uh, quickly evaporates. That's not what it, that system's about. Um, you know, this is state control of wahine Māori going on. So you you have to develop yeah, a, a really um, a resilience and a fortitude and, and you have to do it on your own. Um, and so what that looks like for different women, you know, varies. So I think because of my background, I was able to channel, channel my resilience and and um, towards what would later become um, part of my resistance to those structures. But for other women, that looks like, um, you know, making sure that you're physically safe in your space and then attacking whoever wants to come into that space. Mm. You know, so there's all, all kinds of resilience that um, women are trying to build for themselves. And um, I think overall, it's a very destructive place and can be very self-destructive. And it's very, um, I feel like I still have some, what I would call like post-traumatic stress from being in that space. I never had a fear of being in public spaces or in crowds of people before I went in, but when I got out, I couldn't even be in a pack and save for 10 minutes. It was just too overwhelming for me. So uh, now I'm better. It's five years since I've been released, oh, just over five years um, now that I've been released, but it's still, it can still be, crowds can still be, um, it's something I struggle through. Um, so instead of having to like go home as soon as I can, I can sit, you know, get through an event, mm. but it still reaches this point where it's like I have to go because of the anxiety. But there's so many other, there's so many other experiences um, when you're seeing people. Um, I saw a lot of violence in, in my leg. I've talked to other women who didn't see any and I consider them being really lucky. Mm. Um, but it was from day one <laughs> for me um, being in the system, being on remand, um, the double bunking system, the rack'em and stack'em. Um, when corrections don't follow their procedures, they're putting women together in a cell, they end up in a fight um, because, because corrections haven't followed their procedures. They're supposed to have a system that um, like test for the compatibility of the woman before they put them in as roommates. And when they don't follow that, that's when we can have all kinds of problems. And also um, seeing um, guards using their like CNR um, holds uh, in excessive ways on women. Um, so that, that, that was all within my first um, six weeks that, uh, exposure to some of the violence in there. And as time went on, uh, I became aware of, you know, worse incidents. Um, so there's, there's definitely um, just that punitive culture and, you know, that um, cruelty that's um, in those places and that brutality. And it's just not, um, you wouldn't, 
you wouldn't wish it on anybody, you know, mm. to be in a space like that. Yeah. If people met you now and didn't really know you, I think people would be quite surprised that you had been in prison. And I'm curious in a, not just in a nosy way, <laughs> I'm curious in a really heartfelt way to know what your life was like at the time that led you to get into that space. Uh, before I went into prison? Yeah. Oh, it was actually, it was chaotic. Um, it was definitely chaotic. Uh, it was really a series of events that kind of led to, um, it was really a series of events that led to um, my arrest and then subsequent prison sentence. So, um in 2009, my father died. I um, was the administrator of the estate. I was the backbone of the family, arranged all of the um, funeral, and that and that went off really well. But then um, a year later, I um, found out that my position, a job that I really loved, had been terminated, and I thought that was the worst day of my life. But then three days later, my mother died, and um, I definitely wasn't the backbone of the family when that happened. Um, in fact, yeah, I, there's a lot of my behaviour around my mother's tangi um, that I regret. Um, but, um, and then I think that was when the wheels started to fall off and then my 16-year relationship ended. And it was around that point that I decided I had had enough of trying to um, conform to like societal standards that there was no payoff for me to keep um, yeah, to keep up my efforts um, on that pathway. And so then I chose the um, anti-social path. And that had kind of been, I had been exposed to that growing up as well. So, um, but at the same time, I'd have to admit to being somewhat um, naive about that whole, um, that whole like antisocial kind of way of life. So um, I I had a partner who had used methamphetamine, and I'd rejected that for like nine years, and then um, and then when we had split and the state that I was in. I wanted to feel better. I wanted something to take the pain away. And I started smoking meth. And it was a little bit at a time, um, but within the course of two years, uh, I had become a meth dealer and um, I had like goods um, coming in and out of my house, dealing all sorts of drugs with all kinds of people. And when I first got arrested, um, I think I was arrested again like a few months later and that's when I knew that I was going to prison because I, I would the first arrest I could have possibly gotten off and gotten some help mm. but to be arrested while I was bailed at large on other meth charges and be arrested again for dealing meth, that was kind of, um, yeah, that was the nail in the coffin and so... Um, at that point, I, I knew uh, that I, 
that since I was going to prison, um, I actually weaned myself off methamphetamine because at one stage when I'd been arrested um, while I was still heavily using, which was a, a lot of what my dealing was about, was just actually get in a supply for my mm. own habit, which was, a, you know, had become a big habit by then. And, um, yeah, I'd been, I was locked up suddenly and I just had the worst, like... Um, like I was like punching and kicking the door because I hadn't had my phone call. And actually four days passed where I hadn't had my wow. phone call. Um, but I, my behaviour became so bad. They were threatening to um, lock me down, um, tie me down on this They're table. Yep. Yeah. Um, but uh, at the time, I'm not saying my behaviour was justified, but I was entitled to a phone call and they weren't giving it to mm. me. I, I, I speculated that they were just like biding some time to search my property and stuff while I was in there. But when I had time to reflect on that experience of being violent in the in the cells, um, I thought I can't go to I can't turn up to prison and be act like that. <laughs> so I am. Um, well, some pretty impressive <laughs> self awareness. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He. Um, yeah. So I weaned myself off and. Um, yeah, just waited to go. And um, I had uh, arranged for my son to go and live with my brother in Whakatane. And um, so in the November, I thought that I'd be sentenced and packed up everything. But I wasn't sentenced at large. And so February came around um, the day after my birthday and I thought I wouldn't be going, but then I did. I was sent away and that was like, I didn't um, expect that then. Mm. So I wasn't really prepared, um, but yeah, I went. Um, I uh, the the group of us from Gisborne. It's a bit of a tiki tour, so we didn't go straight to Auckland Women's. We went down down to Mangaroa and dropped off some people there and picked up a woman from um, <laughs> Napier. <laughs> went on a bus trip before you. <laughs> yeah. It's like a tour before yeah. your final destination. Stayed a couple of nights there, got to Rotorua, which is the hub, stayed a couple of nights there and actually had some really good um, prison guards at that time. And that was the last time I got to see my son. Uh, the Rotorua staff. My brother brought him to see me and the Rotorua staff. Now, there's supposed to be a time limit on your visits, but they, um, they for, you know, forego, what did they? Hmm. They let you have them longer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they let us have a big, long visit. And it was through the glass, but I have to be grateful for that, considering it was the last time we saw each other. So, How old was your son? Uh, he was 13, yeah. And what happened to him? Uh, during, um, so 11 months into my sentence, um, he, it was December um, the 18th, and it had been the last day of school, and him and his friends, uh, their friend's mother, dropped them off at the Fakatani River to have some fish and chips and to swim. It was hot. They were playing and swimming, and um, he had actually fallen over and hit his head and kept running around and playing. And then um, his friends said they heard a splash and turned to look back and he was gone. And they thought he was playing because he was such a character. Um, but then their kind of, um, their good humour turned to nervousness and then turned to anxiety when he wasn't coming up and they couldn't mm. find him. And in fact, for those young people on that day, they had to be 
dragged back from the water um, because they kept diving in trying to find his body. And um, what had happened was uh, the coroner report said that um, either the first time he had fallen and hit his head or the second time that he fell into the river, he was actually concussed. And so he drowned there. Um, I was in my cell. We had had an early lockdown that day. Three guards came to the door and already I was like, oh, no. Oh, what's happened? I felt I thought someone must have knocked on me and I'll be going over to high security. It's like, why are these guards here? And they said, just come with us. And I was like, I'll just grab my shoes. Oh, no, I said, oh, I don't need my shoes. And they said, grab your shoes. And I thought, yep, for sure, I'm going what we call over the wall into high security mm. for something that I hadn't done. But when we got to the office, um, the guards said that um, they'd heard from the New Zealand police that my son was missing. And just straight away I knew that, um, I just knew that you know, he wasn't going to, he wasn't alive, you know. I just had that feeling and the guards were saying to me, oh, um, you don't know that he's dead that yet you don't know. But I definitely, I knew at that time. And then um, they let me have a phone call and my brother was on the phone and the first thing he was, it was just, the first thing he said was, um, oh, sis, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. And the first thing I said to him was, it's not your fault. Um, And that became really significant because for the next three years, my brother blamed himself for my son passing away. Um, And uh, he passed away almost three years to the day after my son passed away. But uh, being in prison, um, yeah, they mucked up my um, release forms. And luckily my family um, held his tangi over till I could get down there. And um, my sister fought to keep the coffin open rather than um, close it, like mm. they, uh, you know, as a practice in some places you go. So, um, which was, I was really grateful for that because she said, like, if she never sees him, she'll never accept it. And yeah, we got, I left the prison about seven in the morning, we got on a plane. We um, landed in Gisborne. We drove two hours up the coast. I was with a prison guard. And um, I arrived. I had 10 minutes with my boy before they put the lid on. And then we buried him, came down, had a kai, and then had to leave to go back to Auckland. And um, it was when I got back, um, it was at that point that um, I knew how easy it would be to sink, sink into an abyss, you know, of despair if I didn't um, come up with a, a, a plan. So um, in the very next day, I was on my um, a beginner's drug and alcohol course and um, turned up to that course and they were like, oh, should you, should you even be here? And I was like, yeah, like, I have to be here. I have to get this stuff. Mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah, it was it was a, a huge struggle um, for me to get through the rest of my sentence 
But um, but I wasn't alone in what I was going through. As it turned out, you know, there were so many women uh, who were losing partners to suicide, whose children, um, you know, all kinds of things happening. Um, there's so much loss for for women in there, you know. And so, uh, you know, I really had a sense of um, from when I first got there and being exposed to some of the violence and what was going on and the brutality, to then understanding just how vulnerable we all were in there, dealing with the different kind of issues in our lives. And yeah, I, I um, yeah developed a kind of plan which kept, kept me um, on track um, because everything was about getting out of there at that point and getting back to my family. <coughs> On your release, did you know immediately what what you wanted to do and the pathway you were going to take in terms of where you are now? On my release, I had little hope of having any kind of gainful future. Um, as someone who you know had been incarcerated, I thought I'd never get a job. I thought I'd never be accepted back into society. And because... I had been a methamphetamine user. Mm. So I thought that all the doors um, would be closed to me and that in some small way I would be tolerated by my family but not really um, embraced. And so, yeah, I didn't have, uh, I didn't have, yeah, I got you could I could say I didn't have much hope for a gainful future. I just thought that maybe I could etch out some little part of the world for me. But um, as my kind of my confidence grew um, in being out, which which took a long time and, and that was really only made possible through the love of my family, mm. uh, through having them supporting me, um, I became more and more uh, confident. So... Back in those days, when I was released, I was on 24-hour. Um, I couldn't leave the house, you know. I had to apply three times to leave Fakatane to come down here to Wellington. Um, and even how I ended up in university was actually an accident. So I applied for an IT course and my enrolment got messed up. So I thought I'll try uni. In my first week of university... I was like, I couldn't handle the crowds. Was, there were just too many people there. Mm. And a friend met me for a coffee on Tuesday and I thought, well, maybe maybe I'll make it through Wednesday. And then another friend met me on Thursday. And I th- that those without that, I was ready to leave. I just couldn't handle it. Um, <coughs> but, yeah, having that support in the first week, uh, I ended up staying and, like, there's no way that I thought that I would still be uh, there now <laughs> when I first came to university, let alone, uh, you know, completing honours and um, with the idea to go on and um, pursue a doctorate, you know, and so uh, it's definitely been a journey. But, um, yeah, it wasn't uh, what I thought I'd be doing. Your current advocacy projects, there are two of them. There's probably more of them, but there are two of them that I know of. 
Um, one of them is to repeal the, the Bail Amendment Act of 2013 and the other one is to increase the use of restorative practice alternatives to harm. Mm-hmm. Can I talk to you about number one? Sure. The, the repeal of the Bail Amendment Act, what is that and why, why does it need to be repealed? Oh, the Bail Amendment Act in 2013 uh, was about um, tightening up or strengthening... Um, the current bail laws. So on the face of it, um, the idea was that it was going to bring more protection for victims of crime. But what we've seen, um, as we see with so many of our criminal justice laws, how that has been applied and implemented, and that's discriminatory towards Māori and in particular Māori women. So since 2013 um, to 2018, Māori women on remand doubled and um, the projections from the Ministry of Justice uh, is that we are on course to have more people in our prisons on remand, meaning they have either not been convicted of a crime or have not been sentenced to a crime, um, that there'll be more of these people in our prisons than who have actually been sentenced. Mm. And there's um, some of those people will be found guilty. And I think one of the really kind of fundamental principles of law is the presumption to innocence, that we are innocent before being proven guilty. So when we're locking up people who haven't been convicted of a crime, who haven't been found guilty of anything, and for some of those people will be found innocent, uh, then to me, um, that's like a transgression of Mm. of that basic legal um, principle. When I I think of bail, and this is my naivety coming out here. Um, but when I think of bail, I automatically think of like Law and Order, the TV program, and how they say, you know, you, it's a million dollars bail or it's a whatever bail and you pay some money and once you pay that money, you can go home until you've been tried and sentenced or found guilty or not guilty or whatever. Does that, is that what it's like in Aotearoa? Is there a system where we go, you know what, if you pay this amount of money, you can go home? Not have to go into remand. No, <laughs> that's not how it works here. Um, and, and I'm really pleased because the way that the um, bail is applied in America, um, you can, um, it's biased towards people who are already living in poverty. Mm. They can't afford to pay bail. So they could have a very minor crime and um, they're kept in prisons because they can't afford bail. And then in certain um, uh, states, these people also won't be allowed to vote because they have unpaid like reparations or fines or, or whatever. Um, so the law says these people um, can't exercise their right of citizenship, which is a right to vote. But here, um, we don't have a, a system um, like that. and. We have, um, so for some crimes, it's mandatory for people to be um, uh, bailed in custody, so they're imprisoned. And um, 
the one of the um, kind of failings of this law is that this is often around violent crimes. And so when you're sending a violent offender into a very violent and brutal space, um, this can actually entrench their violent behaviour mm. rather than do anything to support that person to, in um, their well-being, so that their behaviour, you know, um, isn't uh, kind of pun- um, isn't violent towards others. But um, yeah, so we have the very opposite happening. I have this conversation with my whanau quite a lot around prison being the perfect training ground um, for our young men and young women who may have, um, you know, for whatever reason, they may be violent on the outside, they may have drug addictions, they may have done a crime that actually it might be a a first offence or a, you know, whatever it might be that actually if we had given them more support and we give them more support and we find different pathways for them other than prison, we can help to reform them and and change that behaviour and um, help them be better in society for themselves, for their whanau, for others. Or we can send them to prison where they learn to become harder, more clever criminals that are connecting with, you know, older, more experienced criminals and then they come out with new friends and a new pathway that probably is going to see them go back in again. And I think that probably takes me to my next part. I run restorative practice. And what is it that we need to be doing, especially with our whānau Māori, especially with our wahine Māori, because they are there are far too many in prison. And when I think about, you know, I, I just think about your story and I think, you know, how what kind of support systems are even there to support you through this process before and then during and then after? Because you as an individual are strong and powerful and resilient and you got yourself through that and your whānau supported you through that. But where in our system are we actually supporting wahine as opposed to just going, you know what, you go in that cupboard and we'll close the door so we don't have to think about you anymore. Yeah, um, so it's well known. The term universe, uh, prison as a university of crime is over 100 years old, mm. that term. So we already you know, have an awareness of this. And this this is um, why I go back to the state design of our systems and structures mm. that uh, target our young people early, get them exposed to the criminal justice system early and then it becomes a self-constituting, reconstituting cycle of offending. And then you have things like um, bail conditions, parole and probation. And those aren't any, those are just laws within um, corrections and rules. And when someone breaks those because they're too restrictive, then that person goes back into prison. And that's what I mean about this being a reconstitutive cycle Mm. for our young people. So they're not even having to commit any other crime, then they breach some condition placed on them. And so when we look at the fact that there aren't many services to support people, so in my case, there um, is no um, drug 
rehabilitation or alcohol and other drug um, support. What's well, very limited in our town. Yeah, so I feel like if we're serious about supporting people who experience drug addiction, um, then we would have services available to them. So we have a number of district courts in um, town sh- cities throughout our country, but a very limited number of um, alcohol and other drug support in those same places. So it's really clear that the message is um, we there's a preference to incarcerate rather than to support people and um, treat them, you know, to apply a health, treatment approach Mm. to the issues of their drug use. And so for young people too, we we haven't invested in, when we look at the reasons why people are using drugs and um, why, you know, we see a lack of investment in services or support. And then to come back to young people, uh, why are so many of them being exposed to the criminal justice system so early? Why are they being targeted? It's partly because there's, a lack of investment in services for our youth that keeps them out of the eye of the um, police as the public interface between criminal justice system uh, and and our communities. So, for example, when we don't have activities for our young people, we don't have a rec centre, for example. We don't have um, after-school activities um, going on for them then they're out in the street. They're playing with their friends, they're hanging out at a mall, and that's what makes them visible to the police. Um, So when it comes to restorative practice alternatives, this is really just about what we want to see is more community practices within our communities. This is really about um, helping us to navigate um, conflict that we may have with one another in a way where we keep the um, dignity and mana of all the people involved um, intact. So we, we look at um, victim and offender in the mainstream system you know, that, that pathologizes people, you know, so they're being classed as something abnormal. Um, whereas to me in the Tao Māori view, we deal with whānau. So whether you're whānau who had... Um, perpetrated harm or whānau who have experienced harm. Because before and after these things, we're still going to be a whānau. So we, we, that's why we need to work this out, because we need to work out how we're going to live together. We also recognise within Tao Māori that it's not just the two people involved in an incident that are affected by that incident, mm. that we can have whole families affected. If we take um, uh, an example of violence, a male has assaulted a female. That female has brothers and cousins who want to go and perpetrate some violence of their own mm. on the man who's done that. So it's about bringing all all of the community, everybody who's affected together. And it's not about telling them what to do. Like in the current system, it's, like, it's very prescriptive. Um, <clears throat> but also the things that they prescribe don't work. So it's about the community being able to determine wherever they are. It's not a one-size-fits-all approach, Mm. determining what is in the best interest of their community and how we're going to, working out how they are going to uh, get through this conflict, yeah, respectfully and in a way that is going to contribute to the well-being of their community um, rather than like the situations that we have now 
where um, we come back to this self-reconstituting cycle of harm within our communities. I know that if I said to you, what's the answer? <laughs> that, you know, there's there's no one answer. There are so many answers. And and you've expressed sort of the, the overall idea of where we should be looking for answers. What I want to ask is, from a Tao Māori perspective, what... What can our leadership, our whānau, our MPs, our people be doing more of? What, where can we find the answers? Because I know that um, there are opportunities to have hearings on marae, for example. There are, you know, to me that's just taking a Pākehā system and putting it in a marae and going, here, we're going to modify this system. Um, but is it that we need to have a separate Māori entity, a separate Māori court system, a separate Māori whatever it is. Is that the answer? Or are we still needing to try and transform the system that we're working with, which is a very Pākehā system, which people have been trying to do for decades and very slowly might be making very incremental change, but it's very, very slow. Um, because it's a very resistant system to any change. Uh, you know, are we meant to have our own parliament, <laughs> for example, where we have Māori making laws for Māori? What do Are any of those an answer? <laughs> yeah. Um, tinkering around the edges with a broken criminal justice system... Uh, I mean, even when you, you've even got the National Party, uh, Bill English saying, you know, there are moral prisons, for example, are a moral and fiscal failure. So even in spite of having those admissions, we are persisting in those structures mm. because who do they benefit? At the end of the day, for me, it comes back to our um, Te Tiriti, our Treaty of Waitangi partnership um, and what that colonising agenda was, is to <coughs> remove us from our land, um, remove us from our, our autonomous decision-making about um, our ways of life and the systems that benefit for us and our environment. And so um, uh, that can, to me, it's never going to be the solution. If you have a racist system and you try and... Um, transform that system, you're still going to just have racist transformed outcomes. You know, mm -hmm. It's not going to be the foundation of those systems are so entrenched in racism and white supremacy through colonisation you know, that they're not um, ever going to produce a result that does not uphold those systems. I think we could have a, a in my ideal world, we would have a parallel Māori justice system which is not built on the um, adversarial system we have now. It would be something that could be uh, determined by Māori, but also not, uh, not a centralised system. I see it as a system where each um, tribe or hapu determines what and how that justice system would work for them. Uh, but I just 
have a caveat to that because we do have a corporatized Māori elite. Uh, there is a deep seam of conservatism in some of our leadership. And some of this group still want to uphold the uh, criminal justice system that we have. So I think the idea that we don't have the answers is actually not uh, um, is not an idea that means that we would never have the answers. I think what I'm trying to say is is that what where my um, hope and belief is is at is within our communities that they um, should be given the power to determine how we can do justice um, in our communities. Mm. You know, when you, when you talk about um, leadership and <clears throat> I think a lot about the fact that, you know, we have iwi leaders or hapu leaders or, you know, whoever leaders, but leaders are nothing without people. And what's really important is that we get some of those answers from our grassroots and even from the offenders themselves because a lot of people who are experiencing antisocial behaviour, <laughs> as you note, um, they will have the answer because they know why they got into that in the first place. And the answer is, you know, the answer for that is found right at the beginning of their story. What is it that led you on this pathway? Why did you choose to do this? Therein lies the answer. And so I completely agree with you that, you know, a whole new justice system, a really transformative one, but I think people need to be brave. Our leaders need to be brave. And they get so um, content with how things are. And those who sit pretty in in top seats um, are comfortable and they don't want to disrupt their own lives or their own jobs or their own whatever um, and the positions that they're in and the security that they have for their family. Um, But that's what we need. We need that disruption. We need more people um, being activists. And when I say activists, activism comes in so many different forms. Activism looks like so many different things. And activism is all about bravery and doing what... Um, when I say what is right, I think is actually what is just. Doing what is just. And it may not necessarily be seen as the right thing to do, but it's the just thing to do. And I want to put a widow out there to all of our leadership to really think about how they're leading and really think about how they can disrupt that system to help our whanau move together more positively as, you know, a whanau, as an Indigenous whanau, as a Māori whanau, as a hapu, as a marae, as a whoever. Um, I've learnt so much from you today, and I'm not finishing here, but I'm just <laughs> I'm just acknowledging that myself, I don't, you know, as someone who um, <laughs> celebrates knowing quite a bit about the world, uh, when I meet people like you, I actually realise I know nothing. <laughs> about the world and we need to educate ourselves more about these things and not just go oh you know what I haven't I haven't been involved in this kind of 
experience or I haven't been to prison or I don't know anyone and so it's not my place to learn about it. Actually, it's all of our places to learn about it because these women that are in these prisons and these rangatahi and even these men that are in these prisons are our whānau by way of whakapapa. Whether or not they are your father, your brother, your sister, your mother or your daughter, they are our whānau and if we don't all move together, we don't all move. We're never going to move into... Uh, a space where we can be free in who we are. Um, I wanted to ask, because you have, you've talked about influential people in your life, you've, we've talked about some of the wahine in your world um, and some of the tāne, and I wanted to ask you, who are some Indigenous women that have inspired you on this pathway and have helped keep you going? Yeah, the, um, the most influential uh, woman is my mother for me, um, but also um, Hanani Trask, uh, Leonie Pema, Annette Sykes, and um, more recently in my uh, criminology journey, Kylie Quince. And um, I think what uh, what I really connect to in these women. Is, is that they do have that bravery and that um, imagination, you know, and courage to envision a future you know, where there are equitable outcomes for our whānau, where uh, our well-beings are on a default to flourish, you know, um, and that what drives their pursuit for justice is is guided by that love for our people. And it's also the work of our of our tipuna, of our ancestors, um, that we we are continuing on because at the heart of it is the heart of it is about bringing balance back um, to to our people. When I think that, when I talk about um, victim and offender and how that's pathologised as being abnormal, when you've been the victim of a crime, as I have, um, so as a woman who's also experienced sexual abuse, what that taught me about the world is that you do what you want and you take what you want from this world and you don't give stuff about the consequences. So that was my mindset for a long time in my life and that was directly as a result of the abuse that I experienced. Um, And the reason it persisted so long was because I never had access to help on that issue. Well, it took a long time before I was able to get help on that issue. And that's where my view of the world um, started to change, you know, and... um, yeah, and so where did I fit in in terms of was I an offender or was I a victim? No, those those terms don't work because if we look at our criminal justice system, you've had um, young people that were taken into state care, not their choice. Young people who were abused in state care, not their choice. And that was a pipeline to prison. And um, so the victims of state care, who became offenders? Uh, that's why I don't. I don't kind of like to um, use those terms because 
what I've seen firsthand is that um, there, there's so many vulnerable people caught up in the system whose vulnerability is a direct result of that system. The system then turns around and blames them. And that's that's kind of something that I talk about with our whānau that live under um, colonisation, is that you know, we have a neoliberal government, you know, neoliberal capitalism, and basically that's about putting profits before people. And so, and this also relates back to uh, the comment I was making about um, corporatised iwi and elite iwi, those entities and the government have something to gain from keeping our people in this condition, uh, constantly having to struggle with imprisonment and being affected by imprisonment and crime and abuse and not having any uh, ways to address that or find support. So keeping people isolated from support. Um, it's these kind of outcomes Know, that I'm committed to turning around and um, I've forgotten what your question was. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to get there. Well, I'd ask you it. about who who was some Indigenous woman that inspired you. <laughs> I end up um, yeah. <laughs> but No, because obviously these women who you mentioned have done such a good job at inspiring you that... You know, you you're so um, committed to this path and this cope up, and, and thinking about some of the names that you talked about, you know, Annette Sykes and Kylie Quince, um, even Honani Trask, for who's Hawaiian, and you know, I've I've watched some of her um, videos of just how staunch she is to Indigenous culture, Indigenous practice. Indigenous justice, indigenization. Because you know we talk a lot about colonization, decolonization, and she's so staunch around indigenizing, and what that looks like. And I, I, <laughs> there are just so many of these wahine who help keep us passionate about what we do. And when I listen to you. That is who you are. <laughs> and so it doesn't matter that you carried on the question and the answer with something else because I think it just reflects, um, it just purely reflects on how they have inspired you to keep to your path and to keep pushing in this space. Yeah, I definitely, um, they're all, you know, very strong women and also intelligent women and, and also women who have taken action. So while my mother was, um, you know, used uh, film as a vehicle for her activism, uh, we've seen other Māori scholars um, uh, promote kaupapa Māori as an approach in research and uh, Leonie Pehema is, is one of those uh, proponents for kaupapa Māori approaches. And then in the legal world, you know, we can see how much or how hard Annette um, works, you know, towards better outcomes for Alfano in those settings. And then um, in terms of um, criminology and uh, the criminal justice system, <clears throat> Kylie Quince really um, articulates the issues that affect and impact us as Māori people 
And I think that's really important in terms of, you know, they're all forms of activism to me. If if all if you are making a cup of tea and a cake for hui, that's your contribution. You know, we can contribute on so many levels. It doesn't have to be up in that high level. Um, it can be, you know, just doing what you can wherever you are at. And um, so that I hope that people can see, you know, just through those examples, how varied our contributions and our activism can be towards the um, you know, resistance of the um, towards the current uh, structures and systems that work against us and carrying on that work of our tupuna, but but also working towards um, the flourishing of our communities where we're thriving and where we have well-being. Mm. You know, I asked that question of, of every wahine that is part of Nuku, um, and I asked them who inspires them. And the reason behind it is so that we can learn more about who some of these other wahine are. Um, some of these names people might know, some of them people might not. And I I don't want people to be limited by this nuku kaupapa and the wahine that are on it. I want them to go out and explore and learn about who all these other women also are because we are creating so much change in this world and doing some really phenomenal things that the more we learn about each other, the more we can be confident in our own contributions and as you say the varying ways that we all contribute uh i have a final question and um you've answered it already in a number of different ways throughout this corridor but i will ask it anyway (laughs) which is what is your hope for the future of indigenous women oh yeah i mean (laughs) i I do have so much hope. You know, I have optimism um, for our future, um, you know, for the future of our political aspirations, um, for our dreams that we have, that we hold um, for ourselves and for our people, um, that we can live connected, you know, to our whenua, to our moana, to our environment. Um, and that we also have justice in that space Um, and that we can be truly connected to one another and um, as women to stay connected to our roles as the keepers and restorers of balance in our communities. I think that's, um, that's what underpins and part of what underpins what I'm doing is because that is the future that I want to see come to pass for my nieces and my granddaughters um, so that the my experiences aren't repeated in their lives. Mm. I just want to say a huge mahi to you for sharing today. Um, these podcasts are never long enough <laughs> in the sense that, you know, even an hour only gets a snippet of what what contribution you're making to this world. Um, I want to thank you so much for sharing some really deep kōrero that I know is can be quite vulnerable to share, but is so important in helping 
each of us learn so much more about ourselves and maybe even some of our own whānau members that we um, haven't identified. And so I honour you and I honour your story and I honour the mahi that you do because it is so, so important. And if there is any way that we can continue to support you, um, Nuku is a movement, Nuku is a whānau. Um, we are all, we're like picking people up as we go and everybody's jumping on this huge waka. <laughs> and nobody's getting off, which is one of the, I think it's one of the most heartiest things that I, I could have ever felt. Um and so just reach out to our community and let us know how we can help to pursue, um, help you to pursue the mahi that you're doing and the advocacy projects that you're a part of. Is there uh, anything right now that people are able to do that might be able to help? I think one of the ways or some of the ways in which people can help is really, um, really being open to kind of, Reimagining or imaging our future as Māori people like. What does it look like to you to have a flourishing whānau, to have a flourishing community, to have a flourishing marae, to have a flourishing environment? And when you have that picture in your mind, when you hold that in your heart, what is it that you can do to bring that to life. I think that's the first part, partly is having an imagination because so much of what we hear is like that things won't change, can't change, you know, it's impossible to change. But that's not true. If you can if you can dream it, you can be a part of, of bringing that dream to life. And then just to stay teachable and humble and listen um, to what's going on, to different voices and being open um, to messages that you haven't heard before that may not at first align with your own values. And then from there, when the issues arise that face our people, that we take some responsibility to engage with those issues, become knowledgeable on those issues. And in that way, we uh, won't succumb to the misinformation on those issues. So when I'm talking about um, engaging with those issues, I'm talking about understanding these issues from Tao Māori and from what um, other Māori say on those issues because we we know what happens in the mainstream. We get fed that all the time. And then I think people can um, insert themselves into those struggles, into that resistance um, in the way that, you know, doesn't conflict with their own dreams. I mean, just for example, if... If you're a lawyer, maybe you don't want to be on the front line and get arrested and derail your whole dream. But when you get there, if you're going to do criminal law, then maybe you could offer your services uh, to whānau who get a re- arrested for activist action. That's <laughs> 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 an example. Or yeah. So, but uh, I just want to say one last thing. Uh, so, 
Like one last thing. My story is for a woman out there. If you're if you're experiencing addiction right now and looking for a way out, if you've uh, been in the prison system and you have lost hope of ever finding a job or um, ever, you know, being able to kind of face the world again. For a woman who felt downtrodden through the criminal justice system, if you've ever experienced any form of abuse, this is a message for them that there is redemptive pathways for us, that our voices are important because when we can talk about our experiences and bring light into those places, we are helping other people who are caught in these cycles by bringing awareness to these issues about what sort of support is needed. So I want to encourage these women to, you know, to continue to stand strong, to no longer be held back by uh, shame and stigma, that those are barriers that we can break through and live a life, you know, beyond our wildest dreams. And and that's the hope that I want to leave, you know, our most vulnerable woman with that message. Kia ora awatea. <clears throat> Thank you so much for sharing with us today. Um, I have no more kupu. I just want to really acknowledge you and acknowledge your story. And thank you for being one of our nuku wahine. Um, I know that you said at the beginning of the podcast that it was an honour for you, but it's most definitely an honour for us. So, tēnā koe. Mm-hmm.